As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So I salute each and every one with the honorable and the blessing words of grace, mercy, and peace. May they be multiplied unto you here in the month of November as the Lord has blessed us to uh, step into another community leadership training, a man and community leadership training that is hosted by Bishop Jackson of Fellowship Community Full Gospel Church and Archbishop Elliot, myself, in regards to T.L. Elliot Ministries. And in that on this afternoon, we thank the Lord that we're in a place that we're looking at government structure of the church, amen. Uh, as we were in the previous session, the Lord has blessed us to deal with the topic of protocol and etiquette of the episcopacy. Protocol and etiquette of the episcopacy. Amen. And as I say episcopacy, I'm referring to the government or the administrative structure of the church that keeps it decent and in order. And in most instances, by what many would say would be the office of the bishop, because the word bishop comes from the Greek word episcopate. So episcopate and Episcopacy, as we can see the relation between the words, we can now understand uh, that there is some significant point of uh, organizational structure that we understand from the word. Amen. Especially as Paul writes in the book of Timothy, for those that desire the office of the bishop. Uh, so in that, Thank the Lord for what we understood from part one of this in going in the history of the church and the history of what the episcopacy is, where it was derived, and what was its purpose. But on today, I would like to do some teaching, amen, on terminology that is associated with the episcopacy. And if time permits, uh, I would like to get into the offices associated with the episcopacy amen so in that as i say uh terms that are associated with the episcopacy i articulate that due to the fact that many of us as believers especially when we go to apostolic and prophetic churches and episcopal churches or churches that are all of the above we often encounter terminology that we will hear Uh, Episcopal or apostolic leaders say and unfortunately a lot of times they don't take the time to tell everybody what they're talking about amen I know everybody's understanding what what I'm saying you know and so you find yourself when you're part of these type of ministries don't you feel like you got to do OJT uh, uh, on the job training you know you, you kind of got to figure out what they're saying and what they're implying. And oftentimes some of us feel, uh, I, I don't know if I'm putting the right words to it, you feel guilty or you feel less than because you're like, I don't know uh, what they've done. And you feel like you have to do busybody work to go find or do homework on what they said or what they were talking about so you can feel included 
in, in what's going on. And it's unfortunate that when it comes to the church, we have a demographic of uh, ministry terminology that we still let the body of Christ be ignorant in. And in the same turn, unfortunately, not only do we let the body of Christ be ignorant in it, a lot of times the leaders that are holding those positions, unfortunately, are just as ignorant as the people that they're speaking these things to. And it just seems like elaborate words that are being said, but nobody taking the time to say, hey, this is what that's all about in order to put you into a frame of mind. Amen. So I feel that it is my charge and I believe it's Bishop Jackson's charge as Episcopal leaders in this region for us to say, hey, Let's take the time to give people what these things mean so that when people connect in, they plug in uh, to apostolic, prophetic, and Episcopal ministries, they really know what they're plugged into. Amen? So I just wanted to be, uh, as we say, not just transparent, but translucent about that, even in this leadership training. Amen? So with that being said, notice that today, as I said, I want to touch, first of all, terminology that, that's used oftentimes in the episcopacy. And one term that you see here that I've got listed is a synod. Some may say, I've heard of a synod before. Others may not, but it's all right. Because here's the definition of a synod. A synod is a council of the church that convenes to decide an issue, or excuse me, decide an issue of church or ministry doctrine, administration, or its application. The word synod comes from the Greek word synos, which means assembly or meeting, similar to the Latin word concilium, which means council. So we can conclude that a synod functions as a council meeting to make decisions that impact the working of the church or ministry. So now in this, understand, oftentimes in Episcopal churches, when you're having church meetings, it's really what is understood in the Episcopacy as a synod. Everything that you do as a council meeting, especially when you have a bishop that chairs over it, it is really considered a synod because the bishop is supposed to be the final voice on the doctrine of how things are being done based upon the meeting that's being conducted and the ministry or the territory that they're responsible for, for those decisions to impact. Amen. Now, in that, watch this for those that have been around for a minute that may know something about Episcopal organizations. Another example of when synods are being conducted is when uh, some ministries you hear say that they have a yearly general assembly. A general assembly is nothing more than a synod of people coming together. In the same turn, you will find that you will have either bishops or archbishops that come together that have an organization in order to structure and assist ministries with how they do business, how they do administration, how they make canon law, how they make guidelines. And these are also called synods or the College of Bishops. Amen. So this is what, when you see synod, don't, don't get discombobulated. That's what it's really talking about. It's talking about uh, council meetings or, or administrative meetings that are, that are called together that usually have a bishop or more that's as the chair. Mm -hmm. Amen? Now, the next term that I bring to your attention is what is a diocese and an archdiocese. Often you will hear this around the arena of the Episcopal Church. But when we talk about a diocese, the diocese are the district or area under the care of a bishop. 
In ancient terminology, they were parishes. Amen. And what parishes are, are smaller districts or smaller territories that fall within a diocese. Amen. Now, the parishes having a pastor or priest or churches and provinces that were overseen or supervised by a bishop. Amen. Or in some instances, it may be a priest and uh, were political more so than religious driven. So understand what I'm saying here. When we talk about parishes that some have heard that terminology as well, usually a parish is a small uh, 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 territory of responsibility, i.e. usually a church in which you may have a pastor over. But then you have a bishop that's over that pastor and that bishop's territory or region, which includes where that pastor sits and that church that's under them, makes that bishop's territory expand to still be known as a diocese. Amen? Now, due to this, uh, in the same turn, there's a such thing as an archdiocese. In which, if you have a bunch of regions and territories that fall within the privy of, for instance, an archbishop, then what happens is that territory is also understood to be the archdiocese. Because you have many dioceses operating within the scope or the sphere of the territory that someone in the office as an archbishop is overseeing or assisting the overseeing function of the bishops who have the diocese within the territory and the bishops are overseeing the pastors within those territories. Amen? Does everybody understand how that works or what that means? So when you hear that terminology, you, you, you can understand the hierarchy and the order of what's actually being said. Amen. So now, that kind of ties in what is a district. Because oftentimes you'll run into people who are Episcopal in their ministry background and they say, well, we have districts and we have district leaders. We have district bishops. Amen. So what are we talking about? Well, when we talk about a district, it is a subdivision of the mission of the church. It's not a subdivision of the church. It's a subdivision of the mission of the church. Let me give an example. If you have a bishop who has a lot of different ministries within the scope of their diocese, different functions that they are doing and calling it part of their ministry, those different functions are identified as districts. And so those functions being identified as districts, usually the bishop will appoint district leaders to be responsible for that specific function being carried out. And the territory that that function is being carried out in. Amen. Uh, now, in conjunction with that, so I've got an additional piece of a, of a definition for this. They are territories with boundaries for ministries to be performed within. Amen? Because in that, let, let me use bishop for example. Bishop may say, hey, this is what we're, we're, we're going to do uh, this year. Uh, let me just use an example, hypothetically, toys for tots. But, but then bishop may say, okay, for the church, we are going to do that. But keep this in mind, it's only for Radcliffe area. It's not, we're not extending to Elizabethtown. We're not extending to Vine Grove. We're not extending uh, to anywhere outside of this specific area. So it's a district function that has been given a district territory to stay within to perform that function. Amen? Amen. All right.
So, another significant term that you will find associated with the episcopacy is the term C. Now, I'm not talking about the letter C. Uh, I'm talking about the word S-E-E. -E. Now, I know a lot of people are probably, you know, kind of looking strange right now. What, what does that got to do with the Lord? What, what is S-E-E? Because -E? I see you. Y'all know that's what some are saying. Okay, well, watch this. C is a term that implies the duties of oversight over other associ others associated with a fellowship or a reformation. I.e., the term C comes from a Latin word, CDs, S-E-D-E-S. And CDs means seat or chair. All right, so what am I saying then? A C in association to the bishop or the archbishop or so forth is the seat of authority that is associated with the souls they're responsible for. Let me say that again. A C is associated with the seat of authority, i.e. in most instances you will find in a lot of uh, Episcopal churches, have y'all ever noticed that their bishops usually sit in a bigger chair than what you normally see? Y'all have seen that, right? They're usually high on both ends, uh, real big chairs. And if you never knew, the chair that the bishop sits in in the church is called a cathedral. It is actually the example of the sea or the symbol of their authority, of their seat, of showing all that they're in a seat of authority responsible for souls. So you will hear a lot in the apostolic in the Episcopal church when, when they talk about a cathedral and believe it or not, uh, a lot that are in the Episcopacy that have a bishop that is not only the pastor, but the overseer of the territory, they usually call their ministry the cathedral of whatever their church name is. So like for instance, Bishop's ministry is known as Fellowship Community Full Gospel Church. In most instances though, in the Episcopacy, it would be the cathedral of uh, Fellowship Community Full Gospel Church because it honors and respects the bishop's office as them being in the seat of the sea. Amen? Praise the Lord. And see, you know, what, what makes that still very significant, it actually goes back because even in the book of Revelation, when we talk about the throne seat of the Lord, we look at the bishop's office being responsible to be the physical throne seat in the earth, to be exemplary of the father throne seat in heaven. Because remember, the church is supposed to always be something that symbolizes heavenly places. And oftentimes we have some things that are not uh, uh, materialized, if I may say, in the physical in the church so people miss it. Some people don't respect the throne of God because they don't see the throne in the church. Okay, I hope everybody's understanding what I'm saying. So, so just like as we understand about vestments, vestments are, are, are not something that we just wear. They are exemplary of heavenly things. So just as much as things that we wear and the actions that we do in the church, there are certain things that are symbolic of other heavenly things that are done in most Episcopal churches. Amen? Amen. So, so now, as I'm giving you the information of what's a sea, let me throw you all a boomerang. Did y'all know there's a such thing as a dead sea associated with the church? There's a such thing as a dead sea. Uh, a dead sea is called a titular sea. And a titular sea, when I say there's a such thing as a dead sea, uh, when it comes to the church, what I'm metaphorically referring to is when a church or a ministry cease to exist. 
When you have a ministry that existed and then it ceases to exist, you know, just like you, you decommissioned something in the military or as we know, even in, in the secular world, things get decommissioned. In ministry, in the episcopacy, things are decommissioned as well. And so if you have a ministry that existed at one time and that doesn't exist, or even in the same turn, let's say you had a ministry that was named one thing and the Lord evolved you that you changed the name of the ministry, then what it used to be known as is now a dead sea. It is now a titular sea. Amen? Now, let me continue uh, to still give you some more terms. Hopefully these are some good revelatory things about the Episcopacy to bless those that are listening. Amen. So something else that we bring into our attention when it comes to uh, the Episcopacy as terminology is what we call ecclesiastical province and ecclesiastical jurisdiction. Ecclesiastical province and ecclesiastical jurisdiction. So now, as I define what an ecclesiastical province is, it is a culmination of several dioceses in which one of them is an archdiocese headed by what we would know as a metropolitan archbishop. This archbishop has ecclesiastical or when we say ecclesiastical, we're saying church leadership or legislative body jurisdiction. When you see that term ecclesiastical, it's talking about uh, the legislative or the leadership jurisdiction that is carried by what normally is being filled by the bishop or archbishop of that position. Amen. Now, this is over all bishops of that province who, keep this in mind, are part of that fellowship. Because just because someone has ecclesiastical province, it doesn't mean that they can flex their muscle on anybody and everybody in that region if they're not part of that uh, reformation or that ministry family. Case in point, be it that I am the Metropolitan Archbishop for the state of Kentucky, it only deems that I uh, operate in the authority of ecclesiastical province for those bishops that are within the diocese or the archdiocese territory that are part of the same fellowship with me that I am in a position of authority over them. If they're not part, we have we can have like me and Bishop collaborative relationship, but it doesn't make me over her as a bishop or her over me. It's just the fact that we collaborate with each other. But for those that are part of a reformation, part of an organization that have these uh, bishops or archbishops that are in the positions of authority, then the respect is there that they are the uh, a referral voice when someone needs help to deal with what problems they've got going on in their region or in their church, especially when they need assistance to come to canon law as to how they need to initiate things according to the scripture so that there's no debate, there's no schisms or isms within their body based on them having another source to assist them making a conclusion to resolve matters. Amen. So that is what ecclesiastical province is. Ecclesiastical jurisdiction, which kind of goes hand in hand. Ecclesiastical jurisdiction is the ability to uh, express territorial, ecclesiastical, executive, or legislative authority in and over church leadership or its legislative body. This implies operating under the authority of being a judicial officer to investigate and decide cases under canon law. Okay. So what that says in layman's term for a bishop or an archbishop 
who has ecclesiastical jurisdiction, then it means if it comes down to the fact that there's debate, then what happens is just like you have a council that comes in to settle the debate, this is understood in a reformation as to who has the jurisdiction to do so. Amen? Because a lot of people be, y'all know like we say that cliche, who shot John? Everybody say, well, why you get to call the shots and, and so forth. So in that, there, there is usually within a structure, an Episcopal structure, those who have been appointed with jurisdiction, amen, ecclesiastically, in order to be a senior position to assist with those issues that may go on, that may have debate, especially when you got a few people that's got ecclesiastical province. Amen? Amen. So, so in that, notice something else that I mentioned a few times here in even giving these, these uh, definitions was in regards to canon law. Some may say, well, what is canon law? Amen. Well, understood in the episcopacy, canon law is the system of laws and ecclesiastically legal principles made and enforced by the hierarchy authority of the church. Okay. Listen to me. These laws regulate the church's external organization and government. They also order and direct the activities of the ministry towards the mission of the church. So what am I saying here? What I'm bringing to your attention is under the episcopacy, usually your bishop begins to structure what is the system of how you do business with the morals and ethics that are exemplary of the mission of the church that they've been given. And in the same turn, these laws also are understood to be the hierarchy. Amen. Because once they get them codified, in most instances, y'all know, even though we're a church, you do things legally also. Then once they're codified, it's not really to be challenged unless you have some grounds that legally go against what the bishop has established according. And we're believing the, 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 the canon or the laws and the bylaws of the ministry are parallel to the word of the Lord then unless you have something that counters that according to scripture, then they stand as the canon law. And they not only stand as the canon law for the church, they stand as the canon law of the church outside of the edifice that you're operating in. Why am I saying that? Well, I want to clarify to you, if you're part of the episcopacy of a church where your bishop has established the canon law, then that law is supposed to be duplicated everywhere you go to represent that church. It is not for you to freelance and do your own version of canon law outside of the church if you're submitted to that church and the episcopacy that that church represents. So that means you are supposed to be, watch this in layman's terms, kingdom-minded outside of the church that you're connected to under the canon law that you've submitted to. And I say it like that because I, I, I'm really passionate on that because that's what an apostle does. Amen. A lot of people, people think, well, an apostle is just an ambassador for the Lord. No. When you go back and you begin to understand the function of the apostle, and I know I'm kind of straying away from the episcopacy, but I, 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 the Holy Spirit is telling me this is a teaching point. Understand, for even the apostle, the term apostle goes back to 386 B.C.E. 
That's before Jesus even came on the scene. So it wasn't a term that was, that was initiated when he chose the twelve. When you go back and you begin to look and understand, it was a term by the Romans and the Greeks for a captain of the guard that went out on a ship from the homeland and everywhere that they went, everywhere that they stepped foot, their function was to turn or convert that territory to look like where they came from. And if they encountered people where they went, the job was still to convert them to look like where they came from also. So when Jesus recoined the apostle in the New Testament, it was still under the same function. He says, I'm sent from the Father, uh, and, and, and where I have come from in the Father was the kingdom. So now I've chosen you to be captains to go out into the world, and everywhere that you go, transform that territory to look like the kingdom. And everybody that you encounter in the process transform them to be part of this same army or part of this same guard from the kingdom. So that is a apostolic as well as an Episcopal function because as we understand even the history of the Episcopacy, that's what the apostles laid hands on to maintain the churches when they went on to start other churches. It was for them to continue this same process in order to turn the world upside down and make the world become the kingdom versus the kingdom become the world. I digress. But this is what canon, significance of canon law. Amen. Next term I, I believe is very significant in the episcopacy as well is when you hear individuals of the episcopacy say the sacraments of holy orders. What is the sacrament of holy orders? All right, here's something that's very profound, hopefully, to any and all of you. The sacrament of holy orders is the mission that was entrusted by Christ to the apostles to continue to exercise the episcopate the presbyterate and the diaconate in the church. Now when I say the episcopate, it's the bishopric. When I say the presbyterate, it is elders, which are the priests of the house. When I say the diaconate, we're referring to the deacons. Remember, I said in the episcopacy, what makes ministries episcopal is those that respect, honor, and operate based upon these three key leadership positions to keep decency and order as to how their ministry functions. Amen? So now, still on this thing of understanding holy orders, all right? This, what, what really ties and, and, and gives the foundation to this thing about holy orders is not only about these three key positions still functioning in the church, but also uh, how it is accomplished. And how it is accomplished is through one, the laying on of hands or ordination, two, by prayer, and three, by consecration. So the holy orders that are continued, which are something that are sacredly kept by the bishops, and we believe should also be sacredly kept by fivefold ministry as well, is to maintain this as the key of validation and affirmation of anything and everything that goes out from the ministry to also represent the ministry. 
See, if these things are, are not occurring, then some may really be renegade leaders or renegade individuals that's doing things but have no commission to go out from what body they have been a part of as a valid representation of that body. Amen? So in that, once again, notice these are key things uh, as, part, uh, as part of how that functions. As I said before, through the laying on of hands, which is ordination, which many of you have seen, and most of the time, ordination is usually exclusive to in-house leaders. Let, let me clarify that because I don't want anybody to misunderstand. Usually, if you are going to be a minister uh, that the pastor or the bishop is looking to give you the autonomy to perform the ordinances of the church, especially in their absence, meaning weddings, funerals, communion, etc., then it is deemed that they ordain you. They're not just licensing you. It's one thing to license you, give you a certificate. And in most instances, I recommend that licenses have an expiration date. Because oftentimes, uh, 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 people looking at me deep right now. Well, your, your driver's license have an expiration date. So what happens is if you don't have an expiration date on licenses, then people go and they can still slander the name of the ministry doing any and everything when they're especially not under your care or your supervision or they're not part of your C anymore. And so you have to make sure that nothing that's outside of the scope of your C is now causing ripples in your C that don't match what your C represents. Everybody understand what I'm saying? All right. So, so, so in that, there's one thing to license individuals, but it's another thing to ordain them. And ordaining, once again, is the laying on of hands on the individual. But now, as Paul says in Timothy, he says, don't lay hands too quickly. Meaning, there should be an assessment of the individual. You just don't have somebody pop up on the scene, Johnny come lately, and they tell you, I've done this and I've done that, and then you all of a sudden lay hands on them and put them into position. There should be some observation of time amen of them serving and validating who they are because see watch this in the ministry titles uh, licenses and ordinations aren't meant to be OJT understand if I if I can teach you for a minute all of those things are not meant to be OJT you are supposed to do OJT before those events occurred when people are ordained and they are consecrated, it's based upon a work they're already doing. Not somebody now being told you fixing to do the work. That's why the license or the ordination is validating what you already are doing. So now those that lay hands on you aren't laying hands quickly because they've had time to have relationship with you to ensure that what you are doing is valid and warrants hands being laid on you or you being ordained. So ordination is usually, like I said, to ministers, ordination is to deacons, ordination is to elders, because now this means they got a greater level of responsibility in the house of the Lord, and they have a greater accountability to the leadership that they have, whether it's a bishop, whether it's an archbishop, whether it's an apostle, etc., they have an accountability, meaning they got somebody to answer to. Their responsibility means they've got something to do. Okay. Some are probably saying right now, wow, it's a lot with the Episcopacy. Why, yes, it is. <laughs> so, ordination 
falls into those arenas and with ordination comes prayer. There's, there's prayer, there's a blessing that is put on the individual because just as much as you're laying hands on them, we understand in the Episcopacy there's a prayer over their life. There's a prayer of blessing that they go forth to be successful with what they have now had imparted or transferred to them because they're carrying a piece of the consecrator or the prelay, as we say in the Episcopacy, where they're carrying their anointing. It's now transitioning to the individual who's being ordained. Now, consecrating is a little bit more. Because consecrating is separating in order to be dedicating oneself to a higher calling, a higher office, a higher responsibility, a higher mantle. And see, consecrating associates itself not only with the office of the bishop, not, not, not only with the office of the apostle, not only with the office of the prophet. See, these, these are offices uh, we can also throw out a five-fold ministry, the evangelist in there, because they are offices that are global. Under, understand, ordination in the Episcopacy yokes itself to what stays internal to the church that doesn't go beyond that. But usually when it comes to offices or mantles that yoke themselves to going outside of the church, outside of the local region to greater territory of ministry, now we begin to deal with consecration as well. Or when it comes to the bishopric being consecrated because the bishop has the authority to consecrate those who have global ministry. A am I making sense? Which now we understand because some will say, well, if the bishop ha has, has the bishop consecrated when they stay uh, 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 local to what their diocese or, or what their province of authority is. And it's because somebody has to have the authority or the autonomy in order to consecrate those that's got global ministry. And as scripture says, how can you prophesy unless you've been prophesied to? How can you declare unless you've been declared to? So how can they send somebody out? Consecrate somebody to send somebody out to do global work if they have not been consecrated themselves. Amen. Now I don't have it. I don't have it up here as as I talk about holy orders. But let me even uh, give you another because usually when it comes to archbishops, archbishops are consecrated. They're enthroned. And the reason we're enthroned is because you can't reconsecrate for what's already been consecrated. Amen. Usually those who are in the office of the archbishop, they were either a bishop or an apostle before and they were consecrated in those offices or mantles. So for an archbishop, they are placed in an enthronement, meaning uh, the service doesn't go the same as a consecration service. Amen. Amen. Hope y'all are still learning something. Amen. I want to be obedient to time. Um, so this, this next term is something that really, I think, is a tight issue for some in the episcopacy. And it's apostolic succession. Apostolic succession. You also hear this referred to as apostolic litany. And in some instances, you hear it referred to in the Episcopacy as pedigree. Now, I don't want anybody to misconstrue that and think somebody calling somebody a horse or a dog. Um, because in the Old Testament, the scripture talks about uh, in the writings of Moses about the record of your pedigree, which means who is your father and who was their father and who was their father and who and, and it goes all the way back to what you would say is as the forefather. Amen. And in that, let me define it for you first and then let me give you a little bit of information 
regarding it to hopefully bless some that are listening. Because I know uh, some that are listening to me right now, many faiths believe in it, some don't. I won't say it makes or breaks anyone regarding their function in ministry. All I can say is for those that have it, it's an honor and a privilege to, to say it is something that has been mantled to your life. Um, you know, to just be, to be able to say as a man of God, a woman of God, apostolic succession has been imparted to you. Amen. So I don't want anybody to misconstrue what I'm about to explain to you in the episcopacy of apostolic succession to, to think you are invalidated as a minister or as a leader or as a bishop or as an archbishop, whatever. It's just something that that some may have the blessing and the honor and opportunity to have based on their reformations uh, to add to individuals. But it does not take away from the anointing that individuals have who don't have it. Amen. So now in this, when we talk about apostolic secession, what is it? Uh, it is the uninterrupted transmission or passing of spiritual authority from the apostles to the successors. And by scripture, who these successors were, believe it or not, were the bishops that they left in place. Many people uh, haven't realized that unless they go do their homework, because case in point, just like when John in the book of Revelations talks about the seven churches. When you go back and do your homework, the seven churches were bishops that he appointed over those churches or ministries that he started, which is why Jesus comes to him in order to give him the reprimand for the churches because he was the one who put them in place and left them with apostolic authority. Amen. I just want to, you know, hopefully that's a good sidebar nugget for those that are listening. But let me go on. All right. Normally it's conducted during a consecration and is considered a ledger or a record of leadership by name. Linking all the way back to the original 12 consecrated by Christ. The transmission is usually performed by the laying on of hands of a prelay who was previously consecrated with apostolic succession from another prelay with apostolic succession on their life. Amen. So bottom line. Apostolic succession can only be given to an individual by someone who already has apostolic succession. Amen. Amen. I know that may have seemed the long way around. I was reading eyes how people are looking at me. Uh, I don't want to lose nobody. But that is what apostolic succession is. It's uninterrupted. So, so what, what happens is... Once again, as an individual is receiving apostolic succession, it's usually, you know, even in the concept, what we understand the episcopacy, succession uh, is, is usually done with two or three or more bishops or bishops and apostles or vice versa in order to legitimize because according to the scriptures what else is understood in the episcopacy is the scripture says by two or three let everything be established so in most instances of practice in the episcopacy you usually going to have three it's only if it's a tight situation if i may say that you will allow two to make it happen uh, but normally you look at a minimum of three Amen. But whoever is the presiding prelay, the person who is the senior person in charge of the consecration and the succession, they are the one who is passing the succession from themselves to the individual. And normally that is what has happened in their life prior to the event of the succession being passed to another individual. Amen. Now, what else is significant? Because, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, well, 
uh, I, don't, I don't think that's so. I don't, I don't think it's necessary or so forth. Once again, as I said here a few minutes ago, uh, it doesn't make or break. However, believe it or not, even Jesus's succession is mentioned. That's why it gives the history of his lineage in the book of Matthew. That is his apostolic succession. Who was his father? Who he came through, etc. That is an example of succession, even by scripture, associated with Jesus Christ. So, in that... Praise the Lord. I, I believe I've given everybody a wealth of information on today in this part two of protocol and the etiquette of the episcopacy. And I pray that the information has been very beneficial to each and every one in order for you to also have a clear understanding of some of the things that you will find and hear in an Episcopal church. Amen. So with that, I'm going to conclude right here for today. And when we have the opportunity to come together on the next leadership training, we will get into the offices that are associated with the Episcopacy. Amen. Amen. And amen. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.